0: You're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast. And now, your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas.
1: That's right. Welcome in to a special Tuesday episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us as always from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's Ben Folks, Mr. Folks. you've decided to grace us with your presence today. You'll note at the top of the show that I did not refer to you as my friend, did not imply that you are friend to the listeners of this show uh, because it's Tuesday, we're here uh, a day later than normal. Do you want to tell the, the CME universe what kept us from recording the podcast yesterday?
2: So you're going to be a dick about this? That's what I'm hearing? Pretty much for the whole hour, yep. Okay. Well, see, what had happened was <laughs> I had to do a newspaper story, uh, and it came together rather late in the day, because that's just like when I was able to get the interviews that I needed to do the story. And then I had to rush... And get it done in time for the deadline. And I think it's worth noting, not that I'm blaming anybody, but Chad, you have a pretty narrow window on Mondays during which you can record this podcast before you have to go pick up your daughter and you know be a good father or whatever the uh-huh. hell. Yeah, you don't do. try to put this on me. Um, so you know I could have done it after the newspaper deadline, but then you had to actually care for your your child, so that kind of ruled that out. Uh, and then the hell of it is. Right after I get my story done, the news drops that Chris Weidman is going to have to have knee surgery. That bout is postponed. And so my story gets bumped out of the paper for that newsier item. Um, So basically it was all for nothing. Nothing means anything. Uh, You know, the world is just an, an empty chasm.
1: Just the trials and tribulations of the newspaper business, I suppose.
2: That's what you get when you're a newspaperman.
1: Uh, and yet you had time to do almost everyone else's podcast yesterday. I noticed you appeared on the MMA junkie radio and also went on, uh, the, uh, Joey Diaz podcast. Is that, that's true. Is that the fellow's name? Yeah. Uh, boy. So that really lets us know where we stand, I guess, like pretty low
2: on the totem pole. You know, you could see it that way if you wanted to be a jerk about it. Uh, and clearly you do. Another way you could see it is that I'm, Hey man, I'm out there. I'm getting the word out. I'm doing PR for us, basically. I mentioned the co-main event podcast on, on Joey Diaz's podcast, the church of what's happening now. You know, I'm out there. I, I'm, You know, i got to be the public face for the podcast because, let's face it, no one wants to look at your face.
1: And God knows you don't do anything behind the scenes, so if we can get you to do something <laughs> publicly, that would be a step in the right direction. There you go. That's what I'm saying. You're welcome. Well, we got some stuff in the mail this week, Ben. Our guy uh, Paul Shank up there in uh, uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, sent us uh, some an awesome box full of coffee crisp candy from north of the border. Which nice, I, which I know that you love. I do love that candy. So We'll divvy that up uh, after the show, and and wait. I mean, it's pretty clear that
2: he sent it for me right
1: yeah okay yeah you just go ahead and take all of it that okay. would be in keeping with the arrangement we've worked out about everything else
2: i'm glad we're in agreement uh,
1: we also got some awesome home brewed beer from eric murphy who sent us get this he named this stuff after the co-main event podcast uh not only a couple bottles of scarf choke ale but also uh some strangle bar apple wine so uh some apple wine uh there with with a. Uh, I believe like a nine percent alcohol Man, content.
2: Who, people can you can make apple wine at home. That's not
1: not that's only make, blow my mind, not only make it, but have be able to make it so easily and have enough of it that you can just send a couple of it to to us idiots, a couple bottles. Yeah.
2: And it's got a uh, nice little like homemade label here uh, that says Strangle Bar German apple Vine. Uh, if you nasty across the bottom, yeah, that is pretty sweet.
1: No, See, it's, it's, yeah, we don't it's need amazing. To,
2: who needs to get paid in actual money for doing this? Nobody. I'm glad we don't. Yeah, because we would just use our money to buy a German apple vine anyway. That's right. So really, it is like we're getting paid. Just cut out the middle, man.
1: So thanks to everybody who did that. Uh, three Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast in round number one. We all witnessed the end of Dan Henderson's MMA career on Sunday night as he slumped his way to a five-round decision loss to Mauricio Shoga. Oh, shit! What the fuck? Holy shit! And in round number two, I guess this is where we make some kind of rhyme like No Hope for Will Chope or Will Chope What a Dope. I don't know, I'm just spitballing over here, just freestyling. We shouldn't have done that. And in round number three, so did y'all watch Bellator on Friday night? We did. We watched the shit out of it. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff, and Sir Nigel Longstock is going to come in here for another episode of Master Tweet Theater. But first, right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Ooh, listener mail. The first piece of listener mail, Ben, comes to us from uh, Josiah Renauden. Or Josiah Ranadine. Nailed it. Uh, and it's late breaking because, as you know, the, the thing about the podcast is we always miss the uh, breaking news. But as you mentioned at the top of the show, one of the good things about this 24-hour delay is that uh, we tricked the MMA gods into releasing the news of Chris Weidman's injury. Uh, and after that happened, we decided we better put out a call for some more listener mail. And we got a bunch. So uh, this one is from Josiah. He writes, With Chris Weidman suffering an injury in the middleweight belt, on ice until midsummer, can we start calling 2014 the UFC's most challenging year? Anthony Pettis, GSP, Anderson Silva, Cain Velasquez, and now Weidman have all been taken out of action for some portion of the year, and we haven't seen John Jones step inside the octagon since his battle against the sensational Swede. With the schedule of events only getting busier, what can the UFC do to combat this drought of star power? Discuss, please.
2: Yeah, this does seem like kind of a rough go. It doesn't seem as bad as the injury-riddled year that was 2012, I believe. I think that was the one that was really, really bad for injuries, right? Yeah, and that was one but where, in,
1: in kind of a different way. Though.
2: Yeah, definitely a different way. Like, fights kept getting scrapped over and over again. This one, not as many injuries, it seems, but a lot of key players out of action for a significant chunk of time. Like, a lot of champions that we mentioned, dudes having to go in for surgery a lot. Uh, I mean the good news is John Jones, we're gonna see him again in April. Um, the bad news is it's not against a guy who anybody was really fired up about. Uh, you know, there's a few Oh, whoa, whoa, you're just sitting over there acting
1: like you haven't even seen the UFC one hundred seventy two pre fight hype uh, uh commercials. Yeah. Which let us all know that that Glover Tashir is the biggest threat to John Jones' title ever.
2: Yeah, we're just saying stuff there. Just doing a find and replace, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, who knows? That 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 could be end, end up being a better fight than we think it could. But you know, it, there is a good point that uh, with Chris Weidman now gonna go off for surgery, and here's another note. Did you find it interesting that the UFC says? wait, he has to go have minor knee surgery, so we're pulling him out of this fight and rebooking him for like a month and a half later. How do you know for sure he's going to be ready to go a month and a half after? Yeah,
1: we, we well, we saw how well that worked with Anthony Pettis, right? Saying he was going to be back for the uh, wasn't it, July Fourth weekend, and they were going to book the Jose Aldo super fight
2: then. And but even now, then, all of I mean, a sudden, we got to push that, and we're going to do a whole season of the Ultimate Fighter. That one, even though at least there were doctors at the time being like, hey, wait a minute. Anthony Pettis is being very optimistic. That was the one where the doctors were going to pray for him, right? <laughs> yes. So, yeah. you know, not exactly what you want to hear from, from a doctor. This is one where they're saying, hey, minor knee surgery. And hey, I mean, imagine the most, the minorest knee surgery you can. You still don't necessarily know until you get back on the mats after that how soon you're going to be able to go in there and fight. So it does seem like uh, hopeful. On the UFC's parts, just say, okay, 4th of July, just so happens we have, you know, a couple big events going on that weekend. And we're going to go ahead and say right now that he's going to be ready so that you can start hyping that up. Uh, But, you know, hopefully he is. You don't want to see him uh, out of action for too long. Uh, What I wonder, you know something like this is going to draw a lot of conspiracy theories, right? With all the Vitor Belfort stuff and everything that's going on. Uh, Are you feeling a little conspiracy-ish
1: after this? I still don't understand how they could let Vitor Belfort fight for a UFC title, but uh, I guess we'll save that for the show when after the conspiracies prove proved true and that fight
2: gets made. Which I assume uh, will be like 15 minutes after we're done recording. Right, yeah,
1: right after we publish this thing. I think you're right that uh, 2012 probably had a, a higher number, a sheer higher number of injuries, and that they seemed like they, they happened at the last minute a lot, right, causing yeah. uh, you know some scrambling and, and some last minute emergency additions and changes of cards and stuff like that. But I would E- maybe even posture that 2014 uh, Has been A more uh, A year of of bigger injuries like More influential injuries because As uh, Josiah points out like uh, Nearly all of the UFC champions are, are on the shelf at least for some time and, and some of them for like kind of An extended period and that does kind of Make you wonder what they're going to do uh to fill up all these shows that they have coming up just because you can't you know you can't main event every show with CB Dalloway and, and Cesar Ferrera or whatever that dude's name was. Uh Lord Lord Clarence Baron Dalloway? No, the other guy. I'm familiar with, <laughs> with Lord Clarence.
2: Well, yeah, and, you know, he does point that out that uh, the combination of some key injuries and that were basically just doing a show every weekend. Hell, maybe we're gonna do two shows a weekend from now on. You know, maybe we're gonna throw in a an afternoon matinee, uh, and a little, you know, maybe a, a one off prelim uh, sometime in the morning. A little amuse moose boosh, if you will. <laughs> uh, who knows, man? There's just fights coming out of your ears, and also the time when it seems like the the champions are all sitting at home in a hospital bed doing the old woozy thumbs up pose for Twitter.
1: Next question comes from Dan Yoon. He writes, Just how awesome were Anakin Stan? Is it just me, or has Anak surpassed Goldberg in almost every way? I think Goldberg's style is way better suited to WWE, and we need to wave him goodbye with a nice severance package. Or maybe have Goldberg do all the online Fight Pass shows. Discuss! Uh, I'm not going to be quite as hard on the good old Mike Goldberg as Dan Yoon is, but I do have to say, and I tweeted about it at the time during the show, I do really like... John Anik and Brian Stan as yeah. a uh, as a UFC commentating tandem. I thought that they did an outstanding job this weekend. You know, and what they you know what they bring to the table, obviously. And we've known Stan, great talker for a long time, and a guy who's gonna. Uh, you know, bring the technical wizardry to the color commentator position. But like what the, the vibe that Anna and Stan bring is way more like pure sportsy. It doesn't like, I think as Dan Yoon points out here, it doesn't seem as spectacle ish or like a, like a WWE event as sometimes Goldberg and Rogan make it, make it seem like, but, but they, they come with more of a technical uh, and I would say sort of like even keel, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of shouting going on during the broadcast.
2: Right, well, that's one of the things I wondered because I, when reading this question, I was thinking, yeah, I I definitely you now prefer Anakin Stan as the the go-to broadcast team. You know, I'd much rather listen to those two guys. And I think Anakin Stan is a way better pairing than John Anakin and Kenny Florian. I feel like Kenny Florian was okay, but Brian Stan, I feel like, is just uh, awesome in that role. Uh, but I feel like if you're the UFC, maybe you think... For the exact reasons that you said that you would prefer Goldberg and Rogan for the big nights, because you want those dudes out there shouting and just telling it like you want it, uh, being willing to roll with whatever storyline, even if it's you know trying to sell Patrick Cummins as a legit. Uh, threat to no,
1: nobody wants to fight him turn <laughs> down like uh, 60 opponents
2: <laughs> yeah
1: uh, I mean 75 fights have fallen through for Patrick Cummins
2: that's the kind of thing that maybe you you know maybe Anik and Stan aren't uh, as adept at putting over an obviously bullshit narrative uh, and so you want the guys who are a little more sensationalist for a role like that but like you said yeah from a pure sports broadcast perspective as a guy sitting home watching it I definitely prefer those two.
1: How about since we're doing everything high tech these days, we just you you have a little you you have a button on your fight pass, uh, the fight pass um, uh, amulet that you wear around your neck uh, that uh, (laughs) allows you to choose between like the Spanish broadcast. The uh, French Canadian broadcast, uh, the the British broadcast where they're all wearing vests and string ties and, uh, you know, Goldberg, Rogan. And then you can there's a button also for John Anik and Brian Stan.
2: Is there also like a button I can push and it's just like a lonely German man whistling? (laughs) <laughs> throughout the entire broadcast just whistling sad tunes.
1: Yes. Yes, you can that that uh, option also exists. Uh what do you think about this though? Would you how would you greet the idea of a three-man UFC pay-per-view team of Mike Goldberg, Joe Rogan and Brian Stan? because I feel like Stan uh brings something additional to the table as you know with his his uh experience as a professional fighter and I think uh, you know his his willingness to kind of play it straight and and give the straight up technical uh uh you know uh play by play of what's going on I feel like he might fit in well with uh with uh, uh, Goldberg and Rogan, but although you know a three man team that you got a lot of voices going on. Man. Yeah, you
2: know, but I don't know. I think the three man ke- team can work, and I I do think that. Uh, I, I mean, I still think that I would rather have Anik than Goldberg in that three man team. But I, I do think that it would be helpful sometimes to have a fighter as a third man on that broadcast because I feel like it could help rein in Joe Rogan from some of his. Uh, Worse tendencies because i feel like joe rogan is good most of the time uh and then i think that what people complain about is either that like he gets on some narrative and then like you know that becomes the thing that he wants to project onto whatever he sees or that he kind of picks a guy in, in a fight and is seeing everything from the perspective of that guy's corner you know from from how that guy is doing and you know you hear fighters complain about that kind of stuff sometimes and I think if you had a a, a fighter, somebody especially like somebody really level-headed and uh, articulate like Brian Stan in there, might pull him back from some of that stuff. Uh, And I I mean, I don't think that there's a huge problem with having three guys in there there. There's plenty to say. Everybody can have their turn.
1: Next question comes from uh, David Golden. He writes, there was some wild ass officiating on Sunday's UFC fight night, stopping a fight mid-upkick, multiple point deductions, the overlooking of a headbutt that would have made Mark Coleman proud. I feel like shit was getting a little crazy out there. What's really going on? He was right. This was a uh, a very action-packed and uh, happening event in terms of... uh, just the referee's call of it. And the, you know, the worst one I think was the, uh, the, the stoppage in the, in the fight uh, uh, where, where the, uh, the, the referee stepped in to call things off just as, as the, you know, the upkick was being thrown that that one didn't seem like there was a, uh, a real good argument for the, for that being stopped. Although I think the one that, that, you know, during the main card broadcast uh, caught the most attention was Mario Yamasaki with his, uh, with his officious taking of points, uh, d- during that bout, which I welcome, frankly, and,
2: uh. Okay, but uh, the thing with that one is, I-, I welcome it too that, hey, if you break the rules and, you know, you all know the rules going in, that instead of issuing you a bunch of warnings, we're just gonna start taking points. But he did do the thing later where it was like, okay, if you do it again, I'm gonna disqualify you. And then he did it again, and it was like, Okay, seriously, stop doing that. Like, the refs, you can understand they don't want to disqualify people. They don't want to be the one deciding the outcome of the fight. But at the same time, you can't issue these, like, idle threats. Like, if it's going to be grab the fence and it's a point, grab the fence and it's a point, grab the fence and it's a disqual- disqualification, then damn it, let that be the way it is. You know, don't, like, keep changing the rules and, and weakening your own position.
1: Yeah, it was a little weird that uh, that he took a couple of points and then kind of stopped punishing, uh, Merbeck Simonov nailed it.
2: Nailed it. Totally. Nailed it. Uh,
1: for later violations of, of the rules. Uh, but I guess maybe that's sort of like you're, you're testing, you're pushing mom and dad as far as you can. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll take a point away from you, but when it comes to actually calling off the fight and disqualifying somebody, uh, maybe a little gun shy from that.
2: Yeah. I keep telling you, you got to get those grades up or you're not going to prom. And then it comes down to it. And they're like, ah, well, you know, there's a, you only get to go to prom once. They already got movie tickets. They want yeah. you out of the house. That's right. <laughs> um, let's see here.
1: Let's do one more real fast. Let's here. do it.
2: Just uh, go for it.
1: We got a question from Doug Dixon. He writes, Lord Clarence Byron Dalloway put a quick beat down on Caesar Ferrara. Uh, this weekend the lord is now three and one since 2011 with his only loss coming by way of split decision to dundas's guy boach that's
2: your guy tim it's
1: high time we start giving clarence byron the respect he deserves oh is it high time we start giving clarence byron the respect he so richly deserves or is this a case of ferrara looking good getting off the bus and not much else I feel like Doug Dixon has has really been studying the lingo of the podcast. There, like you know, what I really write my
2: wheelhouse kind of. I, and you pointed out, I love when we start calling a guy something on the on the podcast, and then it bleeds over into the larger MMA consciousness. Like when. Uh, news broke that Bellator was bringing Phil Baroni in. And I, you know, you pointed out that people were on Twitter saying, Oh, Bellator signed the poet, Philip. Ber-. They were just talking about it like that was his real nickname. I love it. It is his real nickname. It is point. now.
1: All right. Well, what do you think about Clarence Byron Dalloway? He's got, uh, you know, he had back to back losses back in 2011, but then kind of put it back together with a, a win over Jason Miller, uh, a win over Daniel Serafian, and then had the split decision loss of Tim Boach that uh, that obviously was a close fight, and then comes back against uh, Cesar Ferrara. Is that how you say that guy's name? I feel like I'm just bungling that dude's name every time. Sure, whatever. You don't know, do you?
2: Uh, I feel like this was one where, you know, you don't want to take anything away because it's a good win for him, but. It, we didn't get a chance to see a whole lot from that. It seemed like uh, Ferreira was a little bit wild, backed him up, and his the the thing that led to the knockout was Dolloway just kind of like leaning away from the strikes and leaning into the cage where you don't really have anywhere else to lean which could be a really bad idea for you if the guy throwing the the punches at your head decides to move his feet a little bit and get closer to you cuz you don't you know you're backing up when the you're backing up on the train tracks and you don't have anywhere else to go uh, but instead you know uh Ferreira came up short on those punches and then Dollar was able to counter and put him out i mean hey that you can't take that away that's a good win all that i'm just not prepared to look at a 39 second TKO victory of a guy who's Kind of wild and leaving himself open and say, you know, Dolloway's headed straight to the top. Wait and see is my take. So too fast and too
1: dominant for you. You would have liked to see (laughs) him let the other guy hang around for a while. uh, You know, maybe grind out a couple of rounds, slow it down a little bit. Yeah, let's see another split decision. Let's get the crowd booing. Give us a really good chance to look at him. Because you know how that worked out for Shogun Hua. Uh, Anyway... Uh, I don't know man I feel like the 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 Lord Clarence Byron Dawb has probably earned a fight against someone in the you know low top 10 to top 15 range in the middleweight division I wouldn't uh, he's already got the fight against Tim Boach. I wouldn't argue with seeing him fight somebody like uh Frankie Cars uh or Costas Philippu. although you know I believe we I think we all know how Frankie Cars fight is going to go uh, that's one where you would get actually, a great look at both guys, Ben I, that, Folks. You wouldn't have to talk about that one ending too quick.
2: Actually, I I think that's a good one. Frankie Car's. Let's do that. There you go.
1: UFC matches made right here on the Co Main Event Podcast. Breaking news. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern that you want to air to the Co Main Event Podcast in future weeks. You know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, co and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. All right, Ben. Well, for about... 11 minutes on Sunday night at UFC Fight Night 38. I think all of the MMA writers at home were sitting around trying to figure out what exactly it was we were going to write about a Shogun Hua victory over Dan Henderson in the main event of this show. Uh, Dan Henderson kind of slumping around the cage, throwing out some ineffectual and awkward leg kicks.
2: Didn't look great. Uh,
1: Feeble takedowns, I would say, stuffed at one point, sending him kind of stumbling across the the mat into the the chain link, uh, and uh, pretty one-dimensional from the boxing point of view, just kind of waiting for Shogun Hua to walk into that H-bomb, the big right hand. Uh, As it happened, however, that is exactly what transpired about a minute into the third round. Shogun Hua drops his hands to try to uh, defend one of those terrible takedown attempts from Dan Henderson, gets blasted right in the face with a right hand uh moves his nose into a gentle S curve about an inch uh, to the
2: right of where it's supposed to be I mean he caught him coming out of the clinch it was a, it was a it was a nice maneuver for for Dan but yeah you're sure. right up until that if you if you take what if you just take what you saw in the first two rounds you're thinking oh wow so it's true what Dana White says about you show up one night and you're old cuz that's how it looked man I mean he, he just looked old and slow uh, like you said, that that weird leg kick he kept throwing, as if it looked like, as if somebody had just told him about leg kicks like 15 minutes earlier, like backstage, and he was like, you know, what, I'll try those. We'll see how those go. And you're you know you you're looking at it. Well, Shogun looks sharp, man. Shogun was hitting him whenever he wanted to, and it seemed like, well, here's where we f- we see something bad happening to, to Dan. In the first round looked like he was done. Looked like when he was just lost and grabbing onto the fence clearly to try and keep from uh, falling down and looks like he's absolutely out of it and then just decides to get back up and somehow stays in the fight. I mean, it's one of those things where on one hand you want to be like, this does not bode well for your future, especially since a guy like Dan Henderson is absolutely adamant that he's going to continue fighting right. uh, until Challenge he's 60. Challenge Machida yeah. on the Twitter machine. <laughs> but on the other hand, you're like, this, I guess, proves why you can still do this right. stuff even as your physical skills are starting to He's grade. Still
1: got that trump card in his back pocket. I think that, I think and he's still tough as shit. Yes, reminded us of two things. Well, three things, I guess. If reminding us that you're tough as shit can be taken as one of them. Number one, you come in with the wrestling credentials of Dan Henderson. No matter how terrible you are at those takedowns earlier in the earlier in the fight, Shogun who's still thinking about him. And when you go in and for that final takedown attempt, it it does uh, get him into that weird scramble where he's got his hands around his waist and allows you to pop up and remind us of the second thing, which is that you've still got that ace up your sleeve at all times uh, with the kind of power that allows you to win a fight that you are really up to that point thoroughly losing in a split second because you can land that H-bomb on somebody's face, uh, which frankly is a skill, as guys have gotten later and later into their careers, that hasn't really uh, helped a lot of people. You know, we saw that from Chris Lieben late in his career, where it seemed like his whole strategy was to come out and hope that you wandered into a left hand. Uh, we've seen something like that in the like development of this brawling style that Diego Sanchez tries to fight with uh but for dan henderson it worked on this night uh and he gets the the win and a double fight night bonus out of it uh after defeating shogun hua but i don't know man where do you feel like this leaves dan henderson it's like you know we're not we're not taking uh new title challengers at 205 for at least a year and it's not like this win i don't think rockets dan henderson up the up the rankings at all if anything it just kind of solidifies him as perhaps the UFC's, like, perfect live TV draw. Like, do you agree or
2: disagree? Well, you mentioned Chris Lieben. I was trying to think of, you know, what are the big differences between Dan Henderson and Chris Lieben, and one of them at least, you know, there's definitely some difference in their skills, but one of them is what the UFC has done with them. And one thing that they they don't seem to do really with Dan Henderson is use him to as, like, a punching bag to help younger guys coming up make their name off of beating him up. Uh, and that is something that they kind of did with Chris Liebman there at the end, where he had to fight a lot of these really sharp younger guys coming up. Uh, you know, Dan, it seemed like they, he's the guy where, you know, for a while after that first, uh, Hua fight, he was fighting the, the top guys in the weight class, uh, in, in either, you know, middleweight or light heavyweight, uh, and not doing terribly well, you know, loses to Machida, to Rashad, to Vitor Belfort. And now they seem to have put him back like in kind of the senior circuit. In a way, also kind of just the, like you said, like the the TV draw kind of thing where, hey, we know this fight doesn't mean a whole lot. You know it, but it's on free TV and you're not doing anything. So you're going to come on by and check this out and it's going to be awesome in one way or another. And, I mean, I think that he can do that for a little while longer, you know, if he wants to. And he clearly seems like he's not even thinking about retirement, even though obvious we're going to ask him about it every single goddamn time i just think that it's when you see a fight like this one where he kind of bails himself out with that right hand you can't help but think man it's not going to be too long before we see one of these nights where that right hand doesn't land and it's just going to be sad because we have to watch you take a hell of an ass whipping
1: well let's talk a little bit about shogun hua here uh but before we briefly address what is the obvious elephant in the room before we wrap up this round. But to me, this performance from Shogun Hua is kind of another sad reminder of like the cruel and fickle nature of this sport sometimes Uh, to the extent that it almost feels like some of it is just completely out of your hands as a fighter. Like you can train as hard as you want and dedicate as much as your, of your adult life to mixed martial arts as you possibly can. And yet you're always at the mercy of the third man in the octagon, in a way, the the referee, uh, and I guess by extension the judges, uh, about whether or not he's going to choose in a, in a split second in the heat of battle to step in and call this fight off because in that first round there you had a uh, an exchange in the final minute where uh, Shogun Hua got dropped with a hook and then got pushed up against the, the fence and, and Henderson tried to engage him in kind of a wild brawl which is also Shogun Hua's world as we were reminded in short order when you know he drops Dan Henderson with two punches and then jumps on top of him hits him with two more lefts and for a split second there looked like Dan Henderson was pretty well knocked out Dropped yeah. his hands, went all stiff. Chin pops up. Shogun Hua hits him again, probably wakes him up. And uh, then uh, Herb Dean darts in there like he's about to stop it, but eventually he elects not to. And Dan Henderson gets back to his feet. Uh, Shogun Hua drags him back down, but spends the rest of the round tangled up in, in Dan Henderson's guard and can't can't really do much from there. But you know, if, if Herb Dean jumps in and stops the fight there when uh, when it looks like Dan Henderson is is knocked out, I don't know that there would be a
2: lot of complaints. Maybe not, but I think what happened after that shows that that was actually really good officiating by her being, because you could see, uh, and you know, when you've been watching the sport long enough, and I'm sure Dan can kind of feel it, like there's a point where you look like you're obviously in trouble, and we're going to give you a second, and we're going to watch you real close, and you only get this limited window of time to show us that you're still in it. And he, you know, kept moving, uh, kept trying to get to somewhere better. And you can you can be hurt and look like you're in a bad, bad way for a while as long as you're still trying to do something, trying to get up, trying to get to a better position. And that's what he was doing. And, I mean, I I think it's maybe veteran savvy on Dan Henderson's part. You know, I thought you were going to make the point about the, the unpredictable nature of the sport, the cruel mistress that is mixed martial arts is that you can be just beating the hell out of a guy and he lands one punch. Well, yeah,
1: that too. Uh, and I agree with you that obviously the result of the fight dictates that Herb Dean made the right call there in, in the first round. And it was good officiating. And I agree with you. I just at this point wonder if Shogun Hua would agree with us as he probably sits in a hospital room somewhere uh, after getting surgery on the, his broken nose and... and Yeah, I mean, he's he's doing this right now. Man, I had him. He was right there.
2: That's what he's doing. (laughs) Like they all do when they lose. Well, yeah, but I don't know if you can really complain about a non-stoppage if the dude knocked you out a few minutes later. I mean, that's one of the things. But if you get the stoppage and he doesn't get the chance to knock you out, that's the whole point. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like if uh, Herb would have let it go even further after, you know, Dan Henderson looks up from shogun who uh you know collapsing attempt on a single leg and says to herb dean basically it's over stop it and herb does and then shogun falls down i mean say herb doesn't stop it right there i don't think anybody you look at shogun it's not like he is going to be a threat to dan in round four at that point i mean that is pretty much over i mean that's the thing there's a difference between it being like uh, oh, you could stop it here and you must stop it here get in there
1: uh, well, let's talk briefly about the testosterone replacement therapy angle. Obviously, this was the last fight we're led to believe in the UFC where, where guys will be allowed to use TRT legally. Dan Anderson got a stay of execution because the, the kind of unexpected way that the Nevada State Athletic Commission banned TRT just about a month before this event and Henderson had already applied for and received a a TUE so he was allowed to use it for the last time in this fight obviously and then goes out and gets this impressive knockout which we would all be discrediting left and right if it was Vitor Belfort that did that Uh, but Dan Henderson has always been a guy uh, for a lot of different reasons who's gotten a little more rope from the MMA media than than some of the other guys who have been on TRT but now he faces this process of having to get off the stuff at 43 years old how much do you feel like that is going to impact his future and what he's
2: able to do uh at light heavyweight i have no idea i mean we saw him uh ostensibly off it right when he fought rashad evans and it didn't you know he didn't look awesome in that fight but then he didn't look awesome in this one either right up until he he landed the big punch that won it i wonder if this is going to be one of those things where we're going to change our minds about it depending on what happens next like say like You know, he loses four straight, which when you look at the way he looked for much of that Shogun Hua fight, depending on who they match him up against coming out of this. Not out of the realm of, of possibility. You yeah, know, he's no he's way. starting to show his age a little bit. Uh, but I wonder if it's going to be one of those things where then people will look back on it and say, see, it was just a TRT all along. Because you know that we would do that to Vitor Belfort. If Vitor Belfort had to go in there without TRT, fight for the title, if he got beat up by Chris Weidman and then you know beat up by somebody else, everybody would jump on it immediately and say, aha, you were all TRT and nothing else. We We knew it all along. I wonder if we'll do that same thing to Dan Henderson. Uh, like you said, he seems to get a little more rope, so I suspect that even if we do do it, we won't do it quite as harshly, or at least we won't enjoy it as much as we would do it to Peter Belfort.
1: Right, and it frankly has seemed unfair a little bit uh, the way that that we a lot of us uh, have played favorites, including myself, really, with with Dan Henderson. Um, you know, and and the, like I said, that that has happened for uh, a lot of different reasons uh but i think one of the never tested uh,
2: positive for steroids
1: is that, one there, that is one of the big reasons uh and uh, I think one of the uh, sort of like hidden positives in the, in the banning of TRT maybe now is that we can stop sort of playing favorites like this, where uh, you know, we're willing to watch Chael Sonnen because of the show and we're willing to, to give Dan Henderson a little bit more benefit of the doubt because he seems honest about it and hasn't tested positive for anything. And yet we'll just rake Vitor Belfort over the coals because he shows up for a John Jones fight uh, looking like he's carved out of granite at 215 pounds or whatever. Um, but it, Anyway, that's probably going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to get involved in a game of Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now.
2: Well, it is that time again. We welcome back to the show a friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am infuriated. Infuriated? Oh, no. Why is that?
0: Several low workmen have descended upon my house and are performing manual labors
2: thereabouts. Well, I know that you hate both manual labor and people who work for a living. Plebs. <laughs> well, all that uh, blue blood elitism aside, uh... Those of you who don't know how this works, so Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from people in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I are going to try and guess who the tweeters in question are. Uh, so, Nigel, before we get going, is there a theme?
0: Yes, as a matter of fact, there is, sir. The theme is, I can't believe you told the internet that.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, again, feels, Chad, like another theme that could kind of apply to pretty much any edition of Master 2 Theater, but I like it.
0: Yeah, no, could
1: mean anything. I guess we'll have to get right in and figure out what what it refers to.
2: <laughs> Let's do that.
0: <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Tweet the first. <sighs> I wasn't myself last night. I sustained food poisoning from eating a beef tartar with raw quail egg as an appetizer at dinner. Well,
2: we all know that. One. Yeah, you're just lobbing up softballs. I like it. I like. I also. I like it because we know this is Diego Sanchez, but I didn't. I guess I didn't remember that he starts off the tweet by saying that he wasn't himself last night, because he kind of seemed like himself in that fight.
1: Yeah, no, there's there well, frankly, there was no one else that could have been than Diego Sanchez. (laughs) Good point.
0: It is, in fact, Diego Sanchez, and he was very much himself jumping around and yelling, but also apparently clenching the entire time.
2: And also, in a weird way, it kind of seems like a very Diego Sanchez thing to do to order steak tartare right before a fight.
0: Yes, also, uh, non-standard spelling of tartare here may shock you.
2: Oh, that's what you want to pick on him for? I can't
0: believe it. Come on, Diego Sanchez, read a book. Mm, Tweet the second... Uh, this tweet has a name in it, but I'm going to leave the name out
2: because it might give you a clue. Yeah, no, know. You don't want to make these easy. <clears throat> when
0: I see name redacted next Saturday, it's fucking going down. Show her my into bed ground and pound going for baby six and seven. Hashtag I love my wife.
2: Okay, so I guess that's somebody who has five kids. Yes, I guess so. And who I guess now here's one where I can't believe you told the internet that feels really apt. Uh you got any guesses here? Uh well,
1: how many children does the poet Philip Baroni have? Do we know? Wait, does the poet Philip Broni have any
2: children? Does the poet Philip okay, Baroni have, have, have any children that he knows about? Does the does the poet have a wife?
1: Yeah, does, he has this, a wife. This strikes me as the kind of thing that the poet would say on in public and on the internet.
2: I don't think the poet Philip Barone has five kids. I feel like that would be something we would have heard about by now. You know, I'm going to say Matt Riddle, because he will tell the Internet things he shouldn't, and I think he does have a mess of kids. Isn't he, like, 19? Yes, but still has a bunch of damn kids. Wow. Well, I'm going to go poet Philip Barone,
1: uh, regardless of the, f- of the factual... Uh, uh, contents of the tweet
2: just going on gut
0: yeah just gut both fine guesses both virile child producing men and both as usual wrong it is kendall grove just going to have sex with his wife very hard apparently wait kendall grove has five children so he says and he's well he's going to have seven once he's done with his poor wife god well that really
2: that gives me a lot to think about to tell you.
0: It's, it's creepy. Don't think about it too long. Okay. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Definitely when he's fighting, don't just picture him producing children. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Sometimes, this is a quote, by the way, sometimes when we dare to walk into the arena, the greatest critic we face is ourselves.
2: That's all it says? Unquote. It doesn't even, like, attribute it to unknown or to, like, some philosopher who didn't say it, but Facebook did?
0: No, just a, a thing a person said, in quotation marks.
2: <sighs> Fuck it, Randy Couture.
0: Oh, that's what I was gonna say. Uh Rich Franklin. Why not? Yeah. Both quote smiths, only one correct. It is Randy Couture. Yeah. Woo! When you walk into the arena, whom do you face? A critic. <laughs> just, just ask Axel Rose.
2: <laughs> uh, you know, I can't even really feel good about that one. <clears throat>
0: Tweet the fourth. This is in Portuguese. Oh. Also, also English. Oh, good. Yes, and I speak English and. Not really Portuguese. Hmm now desistire um de The reason on not giving up is one of the symptoms of self confidence.
2: It's weird how I feel like your your attempt at Portuguese might be the most racist thing you've ever done on the show. And I say that, like, in the installment of the show after you claimed that Japanese people's hands were too delicate for clapping.
0: First of all, that's not racism. That's biology. And second, I've heard Brazilians yell many times. I'm pretty sure I speak their language.
2: I'm going to say
1: Vanderlei Silva. I'm going to go with constant Portuguese tweeter Jose Aldo.
2: Okay.
0: Both fine guesses, both relentless tweeters of Portuguese, and both wrong. It is Vitor Belfort. Damn it!
2: That was going to be my second guess.
0: Yes. The reason on not giving up. Yeah. Mm, one of the symptoms of self-confidence.
2: All right. Tweet the
0: fifth. It's, it's anyone's game, I think. Although I have obviously won. But I think for second, <laughs> one of you two. <clears throat> tweet the fifth. I've fucked whores with tights pussies and whores with loose ones. All about genetics. What? <laughs>
2: Wait, just one more time, just for the sheer goddamn enjoyment of it.
0: <clears throat> I've fucked whores with tights pussies and whores with loose ones. All about genetics. It sounded like you're saying tights. It's that is how it is written, <laughs>
2: sir. Tights pussies.
1: Well, that's. I mean, that's got to be the poet, right?
2: I hope so. I hope that is the poet Philip Roney.
0: I'm sure he has fucked many a whore, but no, it is War Machine! Oh! Whore Machine! <laughs> Tweeting again. Damn it! Yes, and you know, I assume all the whores in his life were happy to read this tweet.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure they're all wondering which category
0: they fall into. Well, I think they all think of themselves as pretty tight.
2: You mean tights? Yes, tights pussies. That's what we're all looking for. <laughs> Well, I can't believe they told the internet that, and I can't believe you did this to us. That was another edition of Master Tweet Theater. Sir, Nigel, what you got going on?
0: Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've been filming an adaptation of Shakespeare set in a modern-day high school about a young woman who has to get back into dating life after a horrific auto accident. I see, and what is it called? It's called How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days of Thunder.
2: (laughs) And what role do you play?
0: I play the car, sir.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Sir Nigel, I guess. Thank you. Chad, Will Chope was supposed to fight Diego Brandao in a featherweight bout at this most recent UFC fight night, but that didn't end up happening. Uh, Bleacher Report, your employers. That's right. right. Uh, Jeremy Botter over there published a report uh, that Will Chope had been kicked out of the Air Force after repeatedly assaulting his now ex wife. Uh, back in 2009, it seemed like the UFC didn't really know about this, uh, and as soon as the, the news came out, it announced that that bout was scratched, Will Chope was no longer on the roster, paid off uh, Diego Brandao and Will Chope, actually, at least gave him his show money, uh, and uh, that was that for Will Chope. Now, seems like we're going to end up having one of these conversations about uh, whether you can beat up your ex-wife and still be a professional fighter, and if so... How many times you can beat up your ex-wife and still be a professional fighter? First of all, I guess we should talk about uh, right moves, UFC, scratching that bout immediately upon hearing about this.
1: Yeah, and the, obviously the details of the situation are pretty ugly, and it's impossible to feel any sympathy whatsoever uh, for a guy like Will Chope. Uh it, And except that you're right in mentioning that the UFC does seem to have sort of like an uneven uh, policy, if you could call it that, about how it handles situations like this. And I think in this case, it absolutely made the right choice to cut ties with Will Chope, uh, cancel the fight with Diego Brandao, pay Diego Brandao the money that was promised to him. Because obviously it's a huge bummer for that guy uh, to have done all that training and and not get to uh, fight. So at least he still gets to have a payday. But also, uh you know, the UFC has guys under contract now. I've seen a lot of comments about Abel Trujillo flying around, you know, guys that have crossed themselves up with the law and maybe uh, been involved in assaults or, or uh, domestic disturbances. And those guys are still with the company. So right. this is a situation where you have to wonder, uh, will Chope, just a 23-year-old guy and a, a kind of an unsung featherweight who had only had one previous fight in the UFC, a loss to Max Holloway, would have this Would this have been different, uh, you know, if we learned something uh, heretofore unknown about the the previous life of a much higher profile fighter?
2: Yeah, you definitely, you better believe it would have been different. Also, you know, you know what would have been a better move for the UFC than uh, scratching the spout is doing your research on a guy, doing a background check on him and finding this stuff out for yourself beforehand. Uh, and then, you know, you, you can make your own decision on it, but you don't get caught unaware by, you know, Jeremy Botter putting your business in the streets. That, that seems like, like from what we know of the UFC, it seems like when they get caught in that kind of situation, the reaction is a lot more severe, uh, and you know, when they, when they don't know and have to come out really suddenly and make a decision, their decision, especially if a guy lower, like you say, lower down the roster, not necessarily a, a big star, uh. The solution is just cut all ties immediately and denounce him.
1: Right. And if you're Will Chope, maybe you should have told him, right, before you signed the contract, uh, just to do a little bit of full disclosure there. It might have been uh, a good idea for you. It might have ended up paying dividends down the road. It might not have. But well, at the same time, best not to make it look like you tried to uh, purposefully keep it from your employer when it when it comes out in the press. I You know, I believe in the original story there was uh, an exchange that said that uh, – That they had asked, like that maybe they had done some kind of background check and that uh, they had checked out Will Chope's civilian life, but had not asked him about his military record, which kind of made it sound like eh, kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation. Like if they're not going to ask me why I got kicked out of the military, I guess
2: I'm not going to tell them, which seems like probably not the best move. I have a feeling they're going to start asking. Yeah. Well, yeah, now they are for sure. Of well, course. And we're going to end up, I'm sure, talking about this a little bit more because one thing in you read uh, Jeremy Bottles' report on it and it doesn't sound like uh, this isn't a thing of like my wife and I got into an argument one night and, uh you know, I lost my temper. And it was the worst mistake I ever made. It was like assaulted her and like, you know, in July 2009. I'm reading from the report here. Chope was given nonjudicial punishment by his unit commander after repeatedly assaulting his wife upon learning of her infidelity. On October twelfth, two 2009, Chope again assaulted his wife and was told the next day not to contact her by his master sergeant uh, unless he had permission from a supervisor. And on November twelfth two 2009, was given permission to speak with her uh, in order to settle financial issues and then ended up assaulting her again. I mean, that's... That's some repeated behavior right there that, that you know, shows a pattern. And the thing is now, though, people are going to say, well, you know, it was four years ago uh, and people can change, all that kind of stuff. Uh, to which, you know, on one hand, I feel I, I get that argument. Like you, if you make a mistake and whatever, you get punished for it, you, you deal with it. At a certain point, like we have to stop punishing you. However, at the same time, I don't necessarily know that that means that you get to become a pro fighter. Like, I don't think that, like, let's say like he doesn't get to become a pro fighter at all. Say like this thing makes him tainted goods. Bellator doesn't want him. You know, Legacy doesn't want him. None of those people want him. I don't know if that is a terrible violation of the man's ability to pick up and move on with his life because there's a lot of other things you can do. I mean, it seems like becoming a professional fighter after you have a history of domestic violence is like the one thing maybe that you can't do. Uh, Or president. Probably can't be president after that. Yeah. Uh, No, I think that's a solid point. I I mean, I think
1: uh, you also make a, a decent point about the idea that we can't punish guys forever. You know, this incident, obviously, or multiple incidents, which I think... Makes it a lot worse and a, a lot more difficult to float this idea, right? right? If it's a, if it's a, a, an isolated incident, uh, then maybe it's easier to forgive a guy and allow him to go on to be a professional fighter. On the other hand, if you're Will Chope, uh, you first of all suffer from the unfortunate nickname of Will the Kill, Yeesh. which seems like a bad oh. way to go considering your past. Yeesh. But uh, you know these ugly incidents with with uh, his his wife or ex wife. Uh, predate his entire fighting career. They happened in 2009 and he didn't
2: become a professional fighter till 2010. Yeah, but uh, remember Dan McGuan, the guy uh, who, the, who killed somebody in a street fight, you know, and was convicted of manslaughter, did a couple of years in jail, and then was going to fight for Bellator... And uh, then basically got run out of the sport. Same thing there. His his conviction predated his fighting thing. But then when everybody found out about it, his past, it was like, you know, get this guy out of here.
1: Right. And uh, the, the point I was going to make was if you're Will Chope and you feel like maybe you've already paid for this and already been punished, I guess that's just even more reason why when you get your, your first crack at the big show with the UFC, you might want to tell them upon signing or, you know, have your representatives tell them, Hey, you know, I, I made this horrible mistake four four or five years ago when I was in my late teens. I, you know, I had a couple of ugly incidents with my ex wife. I got uh discharged from the military. Uh and because at that point you if you're if you try to kind of be honest about it, who knows? Maybe you then end up as one of those guys that the UFC is just gonna defend till the end and not listen to any kind of argument against you, because well, that kind of thing can happen with, with the UFC, which appears to,
2: uh, operate without very much policy in terms of, like, how it makes its personnel decisions. It can. Or, like, you've pointed out, I believe, in the past that, uh, the way the UFC seems to have completely embraced Mike Tyson. Loves having Mike Tyson right, around. Exactly. Uh, love having that guy. He gets front row tickets whenever he wants and everybody's, you know, glad to see him. Uh, and, uh, just gonna completely forget about the, the ugly violent, uh, incidents and violence against women in his past. You know, I think that uh, it's one of those things where you want... Like, I'm glad to see the UFC, when this stuff does come up, take a a stance. And you just, though, don't want to think like, okay, you can do it when it's convenient because, hey, who cares if Will Chope fights tonight? Nobody knows who Will Chope is anyway. Uh, But with other guys where it's going to be a thing where okay, hey, you you all need to shut up and give the guy a second chance. I mean, they do kind of need to decide how are we going to deal with this stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, when you're the purveyor of an emerging sport the way that, that MMA is, you have to kind of take – uh, an overly officious uh, 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 or hardline stance on it—that you do need to weed these guys out and and fire these kinds of guys from the promotion and not really have any ties with them, just because there's so many negative stereotypes that still persist to this day about people that that traffic in this sport and practitioners of this sport that uh, you want to make it look a- as above board and clean as you possibly can, uh, and and so you don't want these guys around. Which, frankly, might be different if Will Chope was like a really good football player or something like that. Like, you know, if he gets cut from an NFL team because of this this kind of, uh, this, you know, problems in his past, somebody else would definitely pick him up if he was a good enough player. Uh, and I just think when you're And when, you might not
2: even get cut from an NFL team. Right, yeah, that.
1: exactly. I think when you're dealing with a sport like MMA, you kind of have to be a little bit more careful than that. You can't really take anything for granted, and you can't really uh, uh, have too many situations where it appears that you're being sympathetic to a guy like this.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, I think that this is one where... Uh, you want the USC to not only have that, that viewpoint as like the steward of an emerging sport, but also because the USC has a sizable female fan base as Dana White loves to brag when it suits him. Uh, how are you going to maintain this, uh, female fan base if you're also having guys in there who have like a record of repeated, uh, instances of violence against women? I mean, if I were a female fan, that's about the point when I would feel sick to my stomach and not want to watch this stuff anymore.
1: Alright, well let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, I think, yeah, after last week when we, uh, we made history with our Are You Fucking Kidding Me? that that both concerned a single fight. Uh, this week, we're going to kind of do it again. We, we both came with sort of uh, similar ideas this week. Why don't you get us started? What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me?
2: for this week? Well, it's worth noting that this time we didn't coordinate it. We both showed up and we both had kind of the same, at least the idea about the same topic for Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And that is the uh, article from the Financial Times uh, Lunch uh, with Dana White. Uh, which, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's pretty fascinating, I think. Uh, and there are a lot of Are You Fucking Kidding Me's peppered throughout this, this article. You could do a top 10 list of the best moments of
1: this story. Yeah. But
2: we have just chosen two. I'm gonna say for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, uh, the, the part where Dana White is asked, uh, if he and the Fertitta brothers might ever one day sell, uh, and he says, maybe, um, but then when he talks about how much they love working together uh, and the secret, he says, to, to how much they, they all enjoy working on the UFC is, quote, no ego. People don't believe that about me, but I'm completely ego free, which... I just have to issue kind of a mirthful, uh, are you fucking kidding me? Not even an indignant <laughs> or like outraged one. It's just amusing. That is amusing as an are you fucking kidding me? Um, also he goes on to claim that man, it's the, it's the journalists who have the real egos and stuff in this sport. Um, but his, his, uh, proof that he has no ego, one time he was supposed to write a book about himself, sat down to try to do it and then didn't want to do it. That proves it. No ego. You're kidding me. That is mirthful. Are you fucking kidding
1: me? Come uh, my, on. Are you fucking kidding me? Also, mirthful from this <laughs> article and maybe even a little admiring. And that is that Dana White uh, shows up to have lunch with the Financial Times at this uh, fancy ass restaurant in London. Uh, first of all, brings his own drink with him. Classy. Which normally I don't think you're allowed to do. Classy as hell. Second of all, orders what he calls his usual, which I think was a ribeye steak. And then when the maitre d' or waiter tried to interest him in the special, which I think was a, a lamb chop or a veal chop, it was veal. Uh, Dana White went ahead and ordered that as well. He ordered two entrees. He ordered an entree and then ordered another entree <laughs> as a side. And they were both steaks. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? That's like the most Dana White thing you could possibly ever do. And the awesomest part. Ben, is that the Financial Times is nice enough at the bottom of this story, which I assume they do every time because this is a recurring feature that they do, to print the uh, receipt, like the total cost from this uh, lunch, which yes.
2: reveals that the ribeye was how much? Uh, the ri- the Scottish ribeye steak was forty uh, one pounds so about whatever. $75 uh and then like you know you, you suddenly you're you're a currency converter
1: I'm, I'm doing this in my head man and then how much was the other the, thing the, the chop? veal chop was
2: uh 4090
1: wow so like $70 you order $75 entree and then order a $70 entree as your side both of them steaks are you fucking kidding me
2: fucking kidding me also uh tells her at the very end uh that it was an absolute pleasure sweetheart I am, I hope that you, you move, remove the big ass cigar from your mouth when you call a, a a female reporter sweetheart.
1: Well, that is gonna do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number
2: three.
1: Ben Bellator lucky number 113 went down last Friday and uh you and I both tuned in at our uh, respective locations at our home I think mostly to watch late replacement fighter Tim Welch from from our hometown of Missoula Montana pretty much uh, entirely go in there to to compete he ended up losing a unanimous decision to Derek Campos in the in the first fight of the Spike TV portion of the card uh but then yeah, you know, we stuck around for the rest of it to watch Emmanuel Newton defeat Attila Vey uh via split decision to uh I guess upgrade from being uh the wasn't he interim bellator light heavyweight champion yes. and now he's just regular normal bellator just, just light, straight heavyweight
2: up light heavyweight champion
1: uh and also tricky, the Pitbull Ferrer for for Ferrer <laughs> I mean you had it if you just say it with more confidence Ferrer for Patricky the Pitbull Ferrer. There we go. How about that? Yeah, Uh, Knocked out the caveman David Rickles. Uh, Ben, overall impressions of Bellator? Uh, You know, we don't give them a lot of love on the the podcast. They don't make the three rounds very often. What did you think stopping by to check in uh, for this Friday night show?
2: Well, you know, I guess we should mention it's not like we never see Bellator, Uh, but I feel like Bellator is one of those things for me where I see it when I know that there's going to be a fight I'm interested in. Like, I will tune in. Like, I tuned in uh, for the uh, Pat Kern-Daniel Strauss uh, fight. Uh, and that was one, though, where it was like, okay, I'm not going to watch the rest of the card, but I will, I'll you know, record it or I'll tune in, like, in time to see that fight. And it was a good fight, you know, with a great finish. Uh, but, yeah, not sitting through a whole, like, Bellator broadcast very often. Uh, more like you hear something after the fact and you turn in, uh, but this one, yeah, because, you know, Timmy Welch straight out of Montana, I believe he's actually from Great Falls originally. Uh, so I don't know. G-Funk. Yeah. Crank Falls. Uh, so, you know, and, uh, you know, he's a young guy and still kind of, think getting used to, to lightweight, lost the decision, but you know, Hey, Tim Welch's a good guy. I'm sure he'll be back. And then, you know, you stick around and watch the rest of it and you think, you know what? Bellator... People act like it's a a shittier product than it is, like yeah. when you actually sit down and watch it and you're just not thinking about you know whose you know name is on the cage or anything there's some
1: good fights yeah i have a, I have a similar opinion uh you know I, I, much like you i I watch the what I would call the high spots of Bellator pretty frequently, but don't often find myself. Sitting around on on a Friday night with nothing else to do but but watch Bellator uh, but when I do and when i have especially recently uh I, I start to realize that they don't have a bad product going over there on spike t v and it seems like Bellator frequently takes uh for lack of a better term a raft of shit uh from from m m a fans for well there's for, there's no better term right yeah uh for, for being a joke when, you know, when you actually sit down and watch the show and give it a chance, I'm not sure it's as bad as we make it out to be.
2: Uh, worth noting, however, it's probably not a coincidence that the, the card that we tune in on and are like surprised to be impressed by is one that mostly focuses on the lightweight tournament and lightweight is already probably the deepest division in all of MMA. And I think that what you like, when you look at Bellator's roster, you see basically the same things that are happening in the UFC, but just on a on a little bit smaller of a level. Whereas, you know, in the UFC, got a ton of great lightweights. Bellator, lightweight is probably their strongest weight class. And the UFC, heavyweights is the one that still struggles. Bellator's heavyweight uh, division, for the most part, god-awful. I don't know if you've seen like a, a prelim-like Bellator heavyweight fight, uh, but for the most part, Jesus Christ, it'll make you hate fighting. Uh, you just
1: put three words together prelim bellator heavyweight i i stopped listening after that so that should tell
2: you everything you need to know (laughs) well then you know the 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 light heavyweight bout uh the the title bout between uh, emmanuel newton and Attila vey let's talk about that for a minute here's one of those fights where uh i was kind of stunned by the corner work especially in Attila vey's corner where they they are telling him like after round three they're like you got it man you're up three rounds and nothing and they, you can see like he's just believing it and it's like his whole problem in that fight was not being aggressive enough, was kind of like trying to win a title fight going backwards, which is really hard to do in MMA, and that problem is only exacerbated when you're doing it and your corner is telling you that you're pitching a goddamn shutout.
1: Right, and I think both corners told their guys they were up. I believe they went to the uh, Emmanuel Newton corner after the second round, and they told him that he had won the first two, and then they went to the uh, Attila Ve corner after the third round, and they told him that he'd won the first three, at which point everyone sitting at home was like, oh great, everybody's winning, I'm glad we <laughs> <laughs> figured out, finally figured out a way where there could be no losers. There's no losers uh, here tonight in, in mixed martial arts. Well, you know what Attila Vay needed after that third round, he needed Mark Lehman to tell him to get his Attila Vision on, yeah, uh, and get out there and clean up those last two rounds just to make sure.
2: Or maybe Joe Warren tell him to go out there and put your hands on
1: him. Yeah, yeah, uh yeah. The, you know what? After just as a fan sitting at home watching, and when I had had a reasonably good time watching the Bellator broadcast. I was really hoping that the Emmanuel Newton Attila Faye fight would be better Uh, because, you know, here it is for the light heavyweight championship uh, coming in. Yeah, I probably would have been able to tell you the name of the Bellator light heavyweight champion, but wouldn't have been able to tell you uh, much, much more. Uh, and so I kind of had this feeling where I was like, "Come on, guys, get grab the brass ring." Like, give, yeah. give me something to to take to the next event, to to hold on to a reason to uh, to care. And uh, didn't really get that out of the main event, unfortunately. You know, just a, a a lot of kind of hunt and peck striking style. Well, I don't know how much you
2: can blame Emmanuel Newton for that. He seemed to be really trying his best to go out there and put the pressure on and, uh, you know, in his way grabbing the brass ring. And he's a dude who, like, if you actually look at him, you know, and and look at his record, I don't know, how, like, he must feel like he has grabbed the brass ring, right? Because he, you know, he he lost a, a decision, a split decision to Adilovey earlier in his career, and then knocks out Mo wall, you know, probably, who was at the time, before they they signed Rampage, definitely the biggest light heavyweight uh most famous light heavyweight that Bellator had knocks that dude out with a spinning back fist that gets shown all over the place.
1: That Uh, was one of the, one of the knockouts of the year last year, by the way, kind of overlooked by a lot of the, you know, overshadowed by a lot of the UFC knockouts and some of the uh, better knockouts, but treat yourself. (laughs) <laughs> Go back and watch it. Go back and watch him turn off the robot that yeah. is uh, that was King Mo in that fight with the spinning back fist. Well, Glorious, and then
2: and then beats him uh, in a kind of lackluster affair, but but definitely beats him. I think and, and wins a decision uh, in the rematch. Then claims the you know undisputed Bellator title with this victory over Vay, which I t- thought he totally won. You know, I thought I was surprised that it was even a split decision. Uh, he's gotta feel like. Like he's doing everything he needs to do, right? And, but if you're Bellator, I also got to imagine, you know, you're watching, uh, you're watching Emmanuel Newton fight, you're watching him giving, you know, kind of a milk toast interview afterwards and then do that dance, which I still, I don't, I just, when I see him do it, I feel like we should get a doctor in there or something. It's kind of a, well, it's kind of a mosh pit thing. Yeah, I think like it's the, like trying to live up to his hardcore kid nickname. I think or he's what's having going a on. seizure. Uh, and, you know, I got to imagine Bellator is, is looking at that and thinking, all right, well either Mola Wall or Rampage Jackson, I don't care. Just somebody somebody get in there who we can really sell and who people already know and want to see.
1: Well, and I do think that a Quentin Jackson emmanuel Newton fight would be kind of fun. Could be kind of fun to watch. Uh would they do that
2: at cruiserweight or
1: Yeah, probably we'd do that at a hundred and eleven or two hundred and eleven pound catch weight. Maybe. Kind of a, kind of a come as you are kind of deal. Yeah. Alright, well hey, we've only got a couple minutes left, but let's let's address this this issue quickly. Uh You know, Bellator 113, the one we both watched, pulls an average 507,000 viewers uh, Friday night time slot on Spike TV. Uh, The week before that, though, they'd shot up to 180 or uh, 880,000 average viewers for for Bellator 110. Um, The UFC obviously had kind of a weirdo uh, Sunday night time slot over on FS1 and ended up doing something like 900,000. So uh, still out-distancing Bellator uh, in the ratings by a kind of a sizable chunk. However, like, did you come away from watching this show that uh feeling like the 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 at least the competition gap in uh, uh, you know concerning what you see in the cage is narrowing a little bit because I did but in kind of a weird way so I just kind of wanted to hear what you thought
2: I feel like the competition gap is narrowing but I still feel like the problem is the perception gap right
1: yeah that's definitely the problem
2: and it all well it also like I you know the UFC has the better roster from top to bottom so they have that too but I, I think that Bellator's big problem is a convincing Convincing fans, like, hey, we're you know, we're just as worthy of your time just because it's not the brand name that you know. It's not like you know you're being dragged to pay less shoes and your mom is getting you the air smordens uh, because you can't afford the real deal. There's no shame in this. Uh, but B, I also feel like Bellator is gonna kind of be uh collateral damage from the UFC's saturation of the MMA marketplace. Like we talk about how many events the UFC is doing and just inundating us with, with, uh, MMA events. And I think that Bellator is going to have a hard time being like, well, Hey, we're on basically every Friday night. Come on and spare some time for us too. And MMA fans are like enough. I I got plenty. I got all the MMA. Like the
1: market is flooded. You just don't, you literally don't have the time or inclination to try to be a huge Bellator fan. I'm all because There's just too much UFC, but in a weird way, that's the thing that I was going to say is that I feel like there's a a different side to that coin though. And that's that uh, with the UFC doing, you know, 46 events, this, this year or whatever it is that they're going to do. And they've kind of ballooned the roster up to have close to 500 guys. If you look at, uh, your average Friday night Bellator card and your average, say Saturday night, Fox sports one card, or your average Saturday day fight pass card. Uh, I'm not sure there's a ton of difference there, except, you know, when you get towards the top of the card, you'll drop a Dan Henderson Shogun Hua on top of it, but take, you know, this Sunday night, uh, UFC show that we just saw, compared to the to the Friday night bellator card I'm not sure there's a whole lot of
2: difference there. Well you're talking about the the undercard.
1: Well yeah, m- well most of the card really except for like the except for the main except event. Except for the main event which obviously they'll drop a name fighter on top of there to to get you to tune in and obviously the uh the UFC clearly still the standard bearer in terms of its flagship shows with the the numbered pay-per-views obviously those are far and away uh over anything that 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 Bellator is, is able to do. Uh, but I wonder if by having all of these shows and expanding the roster to such a, a you know, a, an enormous degree that it, is the UFC kind of like as Bellator takes a half step forward, the UFC kind of like taking a half step back in a weird way.
2: You know, that's an interesting angle that I hadn't thought of. I, I think you can make that argument for like events like the one we just saw in Brazil, where okay, we got we go to that market so we fill it with a bunch of Brazilian guys you haven't really heard of and a bunch of you know mid level guys, but then the ability to drop a Dan Henderson sure. Joe who right. at the top, uh, you know that's something that the UFC can keep doing uh, pretty regularly on those cable TV fight cards, and it's something that that Bellator is still pretty far away from.
1: Well, that uh, that's going to do it for round number three. Let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, uh, Ben. This week, man, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm just saying, if the circumstances were right, and the financials worked out, I would consider making a return to professional fighting.
0: What?
1: Now, obviously, I'm talking about Gina Carano, who went out and and told the MMA media this week that, you know, under the correct circumstances and for the right price, she would be open to a return to fighting. Well, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Under the right circumstances and for the right price, just about any of us would do almost anything. I mean, if you're going to give me $10 million and allow me to fight a baby, I would become a professional fighter. Under the right circumstances, for the right price, just saying. What are you talking
2: about, Gina Carano? This just in, Chad Dundas would like to beat up a baby.
1: Probably no coincidence, I have a baby of my own,
2: so... (laughs) Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, I don't know if you noticed it on the prelim card on on Fox Sports 1 on Sunday night, but a a Dutch light heavyweight fought for the UFC by the name of Hans Stringer. Okay. all right. I don't know how things work over there in in the magical land of the Netherlands, but uh, to me, I feel like you name a child Hans Stringer and he doesn't become an international criminal, you got to feel let down. I'm little, just I'm just saying a
1: little bit a professional fighter may be like uh third or fourth on the list for what your hopes oh, well, are with yeah. from a child named I mean it goes it goes
2: like international criminal mastermind uh art thief uh number 2 uh number 3 uh celebrated yachtsman Uh, And then number four, professional fighter, Hans Stringer. Just saying. Just saying.
1: Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to fill you in on all the week's happenings in mixed martial arts news. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What I want to know is, how do you look at a beautiful newborn baby and think, God, he looks like a Hans? (laughs) You know what I mean? Just like like, holding your son in your arms for the first time and you're like, I think we're gonna. Like how does that happen? I
2: just don't know. You don't. You know what? I'm I'm wondering.